the scene is set for John the Baptist and Jesus to launch their ministries here on earth. We saw their amazing, incredible, supernatural uh, births. Uh, John to parents who were beyond the age of childbirth. And Jesus, of course, born to a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we got the little story of Jesus at the temple when he was 12 teaching. And then that's it. We don't really hear much about the childhoods of John and Jesus. But we do get some background. And so as we look at the life of John the Baptist today, we'll look at three aspects of of, um, his life and ministry. We're going to look at the background and then his baptism. He is John the Baptist after all, so... Let's not confuse as modern-day denominational Baptists that whatever we think of when we think baptism is what was going on when John was baptizing. Uh, no curtain and dunk tank. Um, come, no, it's, it's cold. Uh, sometimes it's warm. But by the time second service rolls around, it cools off. And then thirdly, um, a rebuke. There's a a rebuke, and we think uh, in in modern evangelical times, uh, you know, the good news and uh, baptism day is an exciting day here at the church, and it's all smiles, and the gospel maybe has been watered down so much in America now that there's, there's no rebuke, there's no call to change. There's no call to repentance. So let's start with the the background. This is fun stuff for a pastor to research. Um, And hard to distill down how much to share with you. But I want to give you just enough historical background so you get a picture of what was going on culturally at the time. Politically, economically, and uh, religiously. So Luke 3, verses 1 and 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in The wilderness. There is a lot of names there. And Luke's our historian. And it reminds us this this is actual history. These are actual people. This isn't uh, storybook time. This isn't fantasy. Real people, real history. And this list of people are all the people who were ruling at the time. All the people who were in authority at the time. So let's take them one by one and get an idea of what the culture was like politically when God decides to send John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah, and then Messiah. So Tiberius Caesar, if... You kind of were half asleep through your world history class, right? It seemed like Caesar was everywhere. 
Well, the reason was because there was lots of Caesars. This is not Caesar Augustus, which would be the most famous of the Caesars. But every successive emperor took on the title Caesar. And so that's why there's so many Caesars. And the reason they would do this is because the, the authority and the fear that was established by the original, you could take on that name and, and some of that authority and, and uh, fear and respect uh, would transfer to you just by the title. Uh, you see this today where um, political families... You know, the Kennedys, the Bushes, the Clintons, you know, uh, something about that name. And in fact, some people are so ill-informed that if they just see the name on the ballot, they'll, they'll tick that box, not knowing anything about that particular person. Caesar had convinced the Roman Senate to temporarily give him executive powers. Quote-unquote temporary, Right? You know how sometimes they say we're going to temporarily raise your taxes till we get caught up and then it'll go back down, and it never does. Or for the Star Wars geeks in the room, I'll raise my hand there. The emperor, temporary powers, and he says, I really don't want to do this, but for the sake of the empire, I will take on this role and... Uh, course, this is where they get that from, from history. The deal was that when Caesar died, the powers were supposed to go back to the Senate, and then the Senate would decide, the people would decide, if they would continue with an emperor um, or if they would go back to a, maybe a triumvirate, uh, a separation of powers. And Caesar, thinking he was a god now, um, thought that the empire needed another god figure and would keep that authority in the family. And instead of going along with the plan, his, his plan was to appoint one of his sons as co-regent and then they would reign together and then when he died, the son would just keep reigning. And so keep all the power in the family for the good of the empire. And so if, if some of this is starting to, to come way too close to home, where we're seeing our Congress and our Senate uh, not be able to wield the kind of power the founders had fought up and the executive branch and the judicial branch, way too much power. Uh, yeah, but Ecclesiastes, right? There's nothing new under the sun. We are not living in times uh, in a lot of ways that are unique at all. And so that actually gives me great hope. Gives me great hope. If you're a Christian, wherever you find yourself in history, you can be a Christian. You can be a faithful Christian. You can honor Christ. You can live for Christ. You can be filled with joy because this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our king is King Jesus. These would-be potentates, these posers, 
though the Bible calls us to submit to earthly authority, all that authority must submit to God's authority. So now's not the time to panic. Now's not the time to abandon the plan, the Great Commission, God's plan for us to be sanctified and conformed into the image of Christ. In fact, the conditions we're finding ourselves in now in the world are probably far more conducive to being conformed to the image of Christ than at a time of great prosperity and um, affluence and comfort. Nobody changes when you don't have to. And so, as dark as our times may seem, if we have a proper biblical view, this is when the church flourishes. So, Caesar had a, a son, but he outlived his son. Didn't like any uh, of the other candidates. A general named Tiberius, who was a very successful general, he married uh, one of his daughters. Caesar married a daughter off to Tiberius. And so he became a son-in-law, and he appointed him to be the next heir. So that's who this Tiberius Caesar is. I was reading a little bit more on Tiberius Caesar, and he was very reluctant to take on the title. He had accumulated great wealth. He had a beautiful villa on the ocean, and he just kind of wanted a quiet life. And that was not what was appointed for him. So you have a, a reluctant Caesar. Difficult to pinpoint what was the 15th year of his reign. Because does the 15 years start when he was adopted as son-in-law and made co-regent? Or did the 15 years start after Caesar Augustus died and he became sole regent? We're not sure. Added into that is some difficulties with the Jewish calendar and hard to pinpoint the exact date Luke's talking about here. Either A.D. 25 to 26 or A.D. 28 to 29. Uh, either, in either case, John the Baptist and Jesus are like in their early 30s, somewhere around there. So that, if that helps you to picture... A 30-year-old man with lots of hair because he took a Nazarite vow, so no razor had seen his head. Um, and he's wearing, uh, what was it, goat hair or camel hair? Um, help me out here. Goat? Camel. Camel or goat? Camel. But not like the nice camel hair sport coat, you know. Um, and eating the locusts and wild honey, and living out in the wilderness area, which if you go on the internet and look at pictures of the wilderness area of Israel, it hasn't changed. Nobody lives there. And so you can get a real good picture. It kind of looks like out if you're driving to Ridgecrest. Right? It's desolate. This is where John the Baptist grew up, in the wilderness area. And, um, you know... This guy with all this hair and the crazy clothes and the weird diet. Um, he'd be a hipster today, actually, probably. <laughs> he, that's way cool. Um, but really, we would, we would look at someone like that. And back then, too, this would be a very extreme um, 
maybe a little crazy, but he's making perfect sense. John the Baptist. But a far cry from what you would picture the life of Caesar with the togas and all the beautiful carved marble uh, buildings and all the luxury and the aqueduct bringing water in. And, you know, think of the contrast there. The, the, the Caesar, who would be the picture of authority in the world at that time, and then God sends his ambassador, John the Baptist, and there couldn't be a greater contrast. This is the kind of man that the world respects. This is the kind of man that God respects. What about Herod? Again, if you were semi-asleep during um, history in your Sunday school class, um, Herod seems to be everywhere too. Well, guess what? There were a lot of Herods. For the same reason, there's a lot of Caesars. Um, now, there's no Herod salad. So, <laughs> at least the Caesars contributed some, something. Something to our culture. I'm a big Caesar salad fan, right? But no, no Herod salads. Um, this Herod is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one who rebuilt the temple. Herod the Great is the one who tried to have Jesus killed. Herod the Great was the one who was crazy and paranoid and had multiple family members killed. That Herod died, we determined, 4 B.C., 4 B.C., uh, Josephus tells us. And so we know that Jesus and John the Baptist were born before that, so somehow Jesus was born before Christ. <laughs> well, we, we determined that the calendar was mistaken, and we're kind of stuck now with a calendar that's off a few years. But that's okay. It's all relative. This Herod is a tetrarch of Galilee. In fact, the passage mentions um, a number of tetrarchs. Tetrarch meaning ruler over four, tetra, four, ark, ruler. So a region was broken into four parts and a tetrarch was put over each part. But eventually, it didn't have to be four regions. Tetrarch just became the name for a local ruler. So Herod the Great's kingdom was divided between his three sons, Archelaus, who ruled Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. So that's the southern kingdom and then up into Samaria. So Judea would include Jerusalem. Uh, Herod Philip II, who ruled the region north of Galilee, and then Herod Antipas, the area in between, Galilee and Perea. And of course, Jesus is from Galilee. Herod Antipas is the Herod that John the Baptist um, was beheaded by. He's a little crazy himself. 
Um, Later, when Jesus stood trial in front of the Sanhedrin, they sent him to Herod Antipas. Herod said, I find no fault here. It's not my jurisdiction. Sent him back down to Pontius Pilate. So you have your Herods straight. Now, Herod, the Herod family, they were Jewish proselytes. They weren't Jews by birth. And the Jews did not like the Herods. They didn't like the way they ruled. They didn't like their politics. There was a small group of Jews called the Herodians that were pro-Herod family. But these were Jews who were mostly interested in getting in good with the local government, getting the positions of authority, uh, you know, cronyism. Again, not much new under the sun. Uh, Compromise on your Jewish values. Get in good with the Herods. Get invited to the A-list parties. Get appointed to the good uh, government jobs. And so on. Then there's Pontius Pilate. Now you know that name. Did you know how he got his position? So Archelaus, one of those tetrarchs, did a horrible job at ruling over Judea. And by the way, Jerusalem was always a powder keg, like it is today. Many different parties, many different factions, many different philosophies, everybody clamoring for power. Very difficult to rule over that situation and so Archelaus ruled with brutality, uh, but that, that didn't work. And he was losing control of the whole area. And so Caesar had him deposed and replaced him with a governor. With a governor. And the governor wasn't Pontius Pilate right away. Pontius Pilate was the fifth in a line of governors. I got the impression from my reading that this became the post you got sent to if the empire had a bone to pick with you. I know uh, some of you CEOs have told me that there's an assignment you get sent to if they're, if they're unhappy with you. Or I'm sure if you're in the military, uh, they, they can station you somewhere that you'd rather not be stationed. Um, I was a junior high math teacher. That's where they send. (laughs) It's where they send people with no credential and have an emergency credential and nobody else wanted that job. Hey, if you're a middle school math teacher and you love it, God bless you. But it it is a room filled with hormones and teen angst and 90% of the students brain haven't developed to the point where they can even handle the abstract thinking of algebra. And uh, you learn right away that all they really are expecting from you, the, the principal, is that you manage your classroom and that the troubled kids don't end up in the principal's office. And if you can do that, for two years, they give you tenure. And then eventually you get the teaching position of your dreams, and then you actually start teaching your subject matter that 
But it's all about classroom management at first. That is the litmus test. And you wonder, how come there's so many teachers who aren't really that skilled at teaching? They're skilled at classroom management. And so that's, that's why they're teaching. And so that's what Rome wanted from this governor, classroom management. Just keep those Jews out of our hair. Just keep the peace. And some really interesting stories about Pontius Pilate trying to keep the peace. And uh, they knew that he wasn't really a tough guy. And so he'd draw a line in the sand and say, look, if you cross over this line. He had a parade once with all of a, um, you know, a centurion. You've got a hundred soldiers and full battle gear. And he said, you cross this line, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> and the Jews crossed the line big time. So what are you going to do? And he did nothing. Um, yeah, Ecclesiastes, not much new under the sun, right? Syria, here's the line, you know. and Putin, here's the line. And if you say that enough times and you don't back it up, then people realize the line means nothing. You know that in your parenting. I'm warning you, this is the last time. That usually means there's five more times I can get away with that. And so that's what's going on culturally. Very difficult place to govern. Then there's this Lysanias, or Lysanias, depending on where the accent is. Tetrarch of Abilene, which is not in Texas. Um, it's far north of Galilee, and it's strange that Luke would even mention this Tetrarch and for the longest time, historians and biblical naysayers said, look, Luke got something wrong. See, the Bible's not inerrant. There is no, no, uh, this person isn't in the historical records. Like, who is this guy? And why don't we know anything about him? And why didn't Josephus mention him? And why didn't, and uh, a few decades ago, archaeologists dug up an inscription about Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. So, as always, every shovel full of dirt in the Holy Land backs up this Bible 100%. This is true history. Again, though, not much is known about, about this man. Annas and Caiaphas, do you know these names? High priests. So high priest, here's, here's how things worked in the theocracy of Israel. A ruling council of 70 called the Sanhedrin kind of ran everything. A theocracy, you know, it's, it's God is our king and the Sanhedrin were God's um, delegates to rule over the people. The leader of the Sanhedrin was the high priest, so he was the 71st member of the Sanhedrin. Interestingly, about half a dozen years ago, I read a story that the Sanhedrin reconvened in Israel. 
And they went back and checked historical records and even used DNA-like um, tests to figure out who was part of what tribe and what, what family. And apparently the Sanhedrin is meeting in Israel. I also know that the Sanhedrin uh, commissioned for all the utensils that are part of temple worship to be remade. And so all of that is ready. So, you know, if you're into eschatology, stuff's happening. Stuff is happening. It's, it's, we, we say we're closer to Jesus coming back today than we ever have been. And you're like, well, duh, right? <laughs> History's linear. So, but you know what we mean. It just seems that world events are such that it seems that he may be coming back soon. But I'm sure every Christian in every century said the same thing. But this time I mean it. It really, it really looks... If he's coming back when the gospel has reached all the nations and technology is making it possible to reach all the nations, then we have to be coming close. According to the historian Josephus, Annas was high priest from A.D. 6 to 15, but was deposed by Roman officials. And so one of his sons took over as high priest. The Herods would appoint the high priest. And that's why a lot of people hated Herod in Israel, because he didn't, they didn't like who he picked. And we find out that five of Herod's sons served as high priest. And Caiaphas was a son-in-law. And there's a pretty clear picture historically that what's really going on is that Annas never really went away. He's like the godfather behind the scenes, pulling all the strings, giving all the commands, giving all the orders. And he was, he was part of the, the trial when Jesus was tried. So that's Annas and Caiaphas. So you've got the the Jews. If you're a God-fearing Jew, you're like an Elizabeth or a Zacharias or a Simeon or Anna, and you just want to love the Lord and follow the Lord and worship the Lord and serve the Lord and be faithful to His Word. This is a very difficult environment. At this time... Israel is no longer really into idolatry of the sort we read about in the Old Testament. Heart idolatry, certainly. The heart can make idols out of anything. But what was going on was they'd moved from idolatry to like a, a radical, legalistic letter of the law, not spirit of the law, Judaism. Uh, theologians refer to it as Second Temple Judaism to differentiate it between First Temple Judaism. And if you were poor and a commoner, it was very hard to live out your faith because the demands of the law and the demands of the religious leaders heaping on top of the law and the demands of the pagan Roman Empire and all their taxation, it was just so oppressive. And things seem hopeless. And that's why you see so much teaching in the New Testament about the rich versus the, the poor. 
And you think it's difficult to be a Christian now. Just wait until you can't get a job because you're Christian. And you lose your tax-exempt status. And you're being persecuted. One of the things I've been hearing during this political season is this, this, um, this cry that if you're not connected in our society... It's getting harder and harder to live a life of joy and, and to feel safe. You know, if you're rich enough, you can go find a place where trouble can't find you. And you can build walls and you can have armed guards. And you can help pass laws that flood this country with people who may want to do harm. But that's okay. It's easy to have that kind of compassion when you have the money to keep yourself safe. It's getting harder for those in the middle class, which is most people in this room, to uh, live the way that you've been living for the last 20, 30 years. And maybe we shouldn't have been living the way we've been living the last 20, 30 years. There's, there's some repentance to do there. Maybe we had it too good. Um, but it's getting to the place where everything costs more and wages are, are not really rising. And it, you're thinking, I don't know if my children will have as good a life as I had. And so that seems to be some of the sentiment during this election season, why this populist movement has risen up. I'm tired of hearing the elites tell me that everything's my fault and that I owe this to all these people and that I am the reason for all of their woes. And maybe that kind of guilt worked 20 years ago, but now we're all feeling the crunch. And you can only take so many times from people until... They say, hey, wait a minute, enough's enough. I'm already giving as much as I can give and then some. And for the elites to say, you need to give more. Well, that's easy for you guys to say. And a lot of that is what was going on here. But not only do you have the money, you've got... The, polit- the religious side mixed in with that. Not only do you have to give more financially, but the law of God, with all of the extra laws that the Pharisees and Sadducees added to the law and the scribes added to the law, became so oppressive. But they're the religious leaders and they they read the Bible and they interpret the Bible. They know what they're talking about. And so if God says, I can't work at all on Saturday and can only take this many steps. I just want to honor God because I have a heart that loves him. But getting harder to live that way. But easy if you're if you're rich and you live near the temple 
and you don't need to take a bunch of steps on Saturday, and you really don't need to work on Saturday because you have enough in savings. Easy to sit on your high horse and look at the common folk and say, what is wrong with all you dirty, law-breaking riffraff? They used to have a term in the Greek for the little people, the hoi polloi. That's, that's plural for the crowd. The hoi polloi. Are you starting to feel a little bit like the hoi polloi in our country? Yeah. Now let's not turn ourselves into victims, for, for goodness sake. We still got it really good here. But certainly a division is happening in our country between the elite and the illuminated and the good people and the rest of us hoi polloi, clinging to our religion and guns, you know. Why won't these people let go of the First and Second Amendment? Ah, beyond me, you know. And we're like, yeah, those are the two that they take those away. It's all over, you know, kind of thing. So maybe this helps us put ourselves in the situation a little and say there's a lot of relevance here. A lot of relevance. The Sadducees... Uh, These were aristocratic synagogue leaders. They held most of the 70 seats of the Sanhedrin. These were the rich. These were the educated. These were the connected. Usually the high priest was a Sadducee. They were loyal to Rome. They didn't really like the common folk. They tried to keep themselves at a distance from the common folk even though the Sanhedrin's supposed to be ruling over all the people. They really didn't have uh, time or, or really any kind of affection at all f- for the regular people. They were self-righteous and very self-sufficient, almost deistic. They believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament. And they believed that God was not really involved in the day-to-day affairs of human life, which makes it easy for you to be self-righteous and self-sufficient and and crass and cruel as an aristocrat. You know, there there isn't that moment where you're ever humbled that maybe God put me in this position for a reason to serve His people. You kind of look at the hoi polloi and say, look, it's their fault they are where they're at. Their fault. Poor choices, or they lack the intelligence, or the hard work. Then there's the Pharisees, who, even though they didn't have as many seats in the Sanhedrin, they ran most of the local synagogues, so they're like the um, populist movement. They're the, uh, the blue-collar union leaders, right, of our day. But the problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't really like the hoi polloi either. Nobody was looking out for the little guy. Everybody was confused and befuddled and, and really disgusted that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and, and sinners. That he, he ate with 
tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, unfortunately, if we were going to side probably with any one of these people, we would feel most comfortable around the Pharisees. Um, They believed in the whole Old Testament. They wanted to keep the law. They fancied themselves, hey, we're not the aristocrats. We're not the elites. We're not those people. And so if we were transported by time machine into first century Palestine, you'd probably find yourself in one of these synagogues. It's what would feel most comfortable to you. They believed in the whole Old Testament, but they also taught that rabbinic oral tradition was also authoritative. And the way they would teach is they would, they'd open the scroll, they'd read the scroll, and then they'd say, Rabbi Shammai says that this means this. And Rabbi Shammai was taught by Rabbi Moshe. Rabbi, you know, all the way down until they got to Moses. And so therefore, it's as authoritative as the Old Testament. And that led to all kinds of funny business. Right? We, we were, Nathan and I were warning in the discipleship class that a commentary is a commentary. It's not the Word of God. As much as we like to sit under the teaching of uh, maybe a John Piper or a John MacArthur or, or whoever, fill in the blank, at the end of the day, they're just men who've had more time to study than, than the rest of us. But their commentaries are not the Bible. So the Pharisees had replaced the authority of the Word of God with their own authority, and that is one of the areas Jesus attacked them. These were the people who, who instead of taking care of their aging parents, would set aside money and say, Korban, this, this, is for, this is for the Lord. And then get mad at Jesus and his disciples for picking grains, picking grain to eat on the Sabbath. You're this holy man. How could you pick food to eat on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, let's talk about this Korban thing. You guys tithe off of your, your mint and your dill and your cumin down to the exact 10%. I could just see these guys like counting out the seeds. There's my 10%, no more, no less. And Jesus said you ignore the weightier provisions of the law, like love God and love your neighbor. When Jesus came and rebuked Someone, he didn't start with Rome, and he didn't start with the Sanhedrin. He started with the Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites. You're like dead men's or, uh, whitewashed tombs. You know, beautiful on the outside, filled with dead men's bones on the inside. No, no love for God, no heart for God on the inside. we find ourselves in a similar environment. It seems as if, as if Rome, Washington, D.C. is going the way of the pagans. 
they're not going to encourage us to worship God rightly. In fact, they're going to attack us for worshiping God rightly, it, it, it appears. They're changing freedom of religion to freedom of worship. Look, you can do whatever you want inside your closed doors, just don't take it out of the doors. And they won't stop there, eventually. Living in Kern County, our local authorities are still pretty sympathetic, it seems, to Christianity. Praise God for that. And to Hatchapee, so many good churches up here on the mountain. So, um, and yet as we slide farther and farther away from a Christian society, the pressures are going to come from the outside and from the inside, from the outside of the church and inside the church. And we need to be on guard against either saying, well, if you can't beat the culture, join it, which we call antinomianism, against the law. Forget it, trying to follow the law of God is just going to get you into trouble. But we also need to guard against huddling up in our little bubble and saying, oh, look at that filthy world out there. They're they're all going to be judged. We don't have any time for them, no compassion. How horrible if Jesus came back and said to his church, woe to you hypocrites. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, away from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. There, there's another path. And John was clearing that path for hearts to receive Christ. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. This is literally what would happen when a powerful king would be on the move his emissaries and his servants would go ahead of him and clear the paths. That, that's power, to fill in ravines, carve paths through mountains so you don't have to go over them, to clear all the obstacles. It reminds me maybe today of our secret service, going ahead and clearing the roads, and barricading the streets and canceling flights and holding up traffic. All on your tax dime. And gassing up Air Force One. And the whole entourage. Following the president everywhere. But instead of all that, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, sends one guy. Wearing camel hair. To spiritually make the path straight. To, to fill up the ravines, to, to, lift, to lift the poor in spirit up and give them hope, to, to cut down the mountains, to bring down the proud. You can't receive Christ if you're full of pride. 
because you won't recognize that you need him. To make the crooked straight, you know, to repent from our crooked living, our crooked way of thinking, and make, make the rough roads smooth. Okay, that's different than you going to your neighbors and taking away all the biblical obstacles to coming to Christ. Look, if you come to Christ, all your troubles will go away, and you'll be rich, and your health problems will go away, and it's all going to be wonderful. That's not what it means to make the paths straight. You've actually just put more obstacles in the way. Jesus came to die for sinners. He wants us to repent. The word literally means to change your mind. Repentance was the first word of John the Baptist's message. It was the first word of Jesus' gospel. You could look up Matthew 4.14. It said, And Jesus came after he was tempted and passed the temptation in the wilderness, began preaching a gospel of repentance. It's the first word in the preaching ministry of the twelve. It's the first word in the preaching instructions Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection. And it's the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon when Peter preaches at the temple in Acts chapter 2. And it's the first word in the mouth of the Apostle Paul when he's preaching to Felix to repent. Imagine telling someone of that kind of authority, you need to repent. John the Baptist told Herod Antipas, you need to repent. And Herod threw him in jail. Repentance isn't a popular message to those outside of Christ, but to those of us being saved, it's a beautiful message, is it not? To change your mind. About what? Anything and everything that is at odds with God's revealed truth and His will. Anything and everything. This is a position of humility. It recognizes Jesus as Lord. Repentance paves the way for us to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, I'm not my own Lord. Savior, I've messed up and I can't save myself. I need a Lord and a Savior. And then finally, John has this rebuke. You can't just say you've repented. There has to be evidence that you have repented. It's easy to say you've repented, but true repentance will always lead to fruit of repentance. Get this, at this time, and this is where baptism is much different than baptism today, nobody in Israel got baptized unless you were a Gentile or a Samaritan who wanted to become fully Jewish. It was called proselyte baptism. And the picture was that you were a dirty, rotten, filthy Gentile and you needed to be washed clean before you could be in the family of God. But if you were Jewish by heritage, by birth, no need to be baptized. You were baptized into Moses. 
through being one of Abraham's sons. And so people were coming down to be baptized and other people were coming down to just look at the spectacle, but they wouldn't go into the waters because we don't need to be baptized. We're Abraham's sons. We're the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. We don't need to be baptized. Other people were getting baptized because it was the thing to do. It was just the thing to do. I don't want to be the only one not getting baptized. And so the rebuke was, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but there better be repentance. Don't get in the waters if you don't plan on repenting. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That is not what we normally preach when people come to get baptized. We're excited as Baptists when people want to get baptized. There's three things that the mothership asks us every year. Attendance, giving, and baptisms. Noses, nickels. And I still don't have a word that means baptism. That begins with an N. But these are things we can count. And then those statistics are helpful on on some level. But with God, he cares about the heart. They should send us a form that says count fruit. Hard to count fruit, though. How do you measure love, joy, peace? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hard, hard to put numbers. On a scale of 1 to 10, where do you put your gentleness this year? And then, like, next year we could, we could ask again and see if you're growing. I don't know. Maybe we're not supposed to systematize such things. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. The, the picture here is a brush fire and the snakes slithering down to the water to get away from the fire, not because they like the water, not because they want the life-giving water. They're just trying to escape the fire. And once they do, they're just going to go back to their ways. Why? Because they're snakes. Their nature hasn't changed. And if you're outside of Christ, your father is the devil, the serpent. So don't flee to the waters of baptism. Don't come to the baptism class to get your get-out-of-hell-free card if there's no humility or plan to repent. If you're going to be baptized, you are declaring publicly, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And when Jesus died and rose for me, That is all I am counting on for my salvation. And so when I get baptized, it's like I died with Christ and I came out a new creation. I have new desires, new thoughts, new plans, new goals. I'm using my resources for the kingdom and for the glory of God. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham for our father. I grew up in the church. My parents were founding members. I grew up in the church and my dad was church president four times. 
And I was my youth group leader, and I passed my catechisms. I memorized Luther's small catechism. I was confirmed by fellow Lutherans. Wore the robe. They let me even lead worship services. I would read scripture. And everyone said, what a great young man. That is a model of what we are after. And my heart was so dead and cold to Christ, so filled with pride and self-righteousness. It wasn't until the Lord took the scales off my eyes. Like Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, to the law, blameless. And all of it, he says, now is rubbish. All of that is rubbish. It doesn't contribute one bit to my salvation. In fact, it kept me from the one thing that would bring salvation, humility, and recognizing I need a Savior. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. God called Abraham to start a nation, and he told that nation, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous or greater than any other nation. I chose you because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So be humble. And Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're part of the kingdom. You must repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ and there ought to be fruit of repentance. The fruit doesn't save you. The fruit is evidence of the salvation that has taken place in your heart. So, in conclusion, I ask you then, is your life filled with fruits of repentance? Or are you looking at the culture saying, well, it's too hard to be a Christian because our culture's going down the tubes and if I act like a Christian, I'll never get a good job and I won't have any friends and I won't be able to influence the culture. You can't influence the culture if you're exactly like the culture. Or are you saying, well, you know, I can't, I can't follow Jesus because the church is so corrupt and I've been hurt by the church one too many times and so I just can't, I just can't worship with all these hypocrites. Well, we got room for another. <laughs> there's, there's empty seats. We don't want to be hypocrites. We're helping each other to not be. We're holding each other accountable. We're speaking truth and love to one another. But who warned you to flee from the coming judgment through your excuses? Stop making excuses. Humble yourself before the Lord. Receive Christ. And the joy of his salvation. Let the word of God and the spirit of God make a straight path in your heart to receive Christ. If, if you haven't received Christ and haven't been baptized, the class is in the chapel right after I pray. I'll meet you over there. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending John the Baptist and all those who preach the true gospel and prepare a way for Christ to come into our hearts. Knock down the mountains of pride and even the poor have pride, Lord. 
fill in those ravines. May nothing stand in the way of of us coming to the Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.